if we are scared or feel shamed for experiencing the negative emotions that are part of this experience, that's really unhelpful. What we're learning through practices like yoga, like meditation, like breathing is to be able to slow down and connect in. And then perhaps when we walk off of our mats, we're a little bit more able to act in a manner that is aligned with our higher sense of self and our sense of how we want to conduct ourselves in the world and what is meaningful to move towards and create in our lives. You're listening to the Wisdom for Wellbeing podcast, the show that blends science and heart to bring you evidence-based tips and tricks for cultivating a healthy, wealthy, and meaningful life. Now, here's your host, therapist, yogi, and fellow full-life balancer, Dr. Caitlin Harkis. Hi there. Welcome back to Wisdom for Wellbeing. So this week it is an episode with yours truly solo, and we're going to be talking through how yoga affects your physical body. So we'll be talking about biophysiological impacts of a yoga practice, and I know that this can get a little complex, a little bit you know, yoga nerdy. But in order to make it a little simpler, I'm going to talk you through stress first. So how stress actually affects your physical system. So then we'll have something to actually compare the physical effects of yoga for. So essentially a framework to go, okay, what's happening here? Because chances are you, like so many of us, have heard that yoga is really good for stress reduction. And stress is... Something that, you know, is a a gross contributor to many mental health problems. So the trajectory of being very highly stressed or of having a very stressful event in your life happen is that a high level of stress makes one then more vulnerable to experiencing clinical levels of anxiety. So diagnosable anxiety disorder. And having a experience of a diagnosable anxiety disorder makes one more vulnerable to, you know, deep, a deep depression, you know, a, a depression that is, again, diagnosable. So I don't, I don't necessarily know that, you know, the frameworks for diagnosing are always necessary or useful, but I think it's helpful to understand that when we use the words anxiety and depression here, we're not just referring to that moment when you get out of bed, you're having a bit of a tough day and you go, oh yeah, I'm feeling so depressed, but the next moment everything's hunky-dory and things the next day might seem totally fine. So we're actually referring to something that's really significantly impacting, you know, some real important areas of an individual's life. So coming back to stress, like I said, most of us are experiencing stress right now. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, there are really, really wonderful effects of stress. If you imagine an inverted U shape, that highest level of that U, if we were saying that this was a table marking performance and stress, 
as your stress levels go up, so on the lower axis, your performance actually increases. If you don't have any stress, you're not going to get up to your alarm in the morning. You're not going to hand up that assignment at work or uni that is due. You're not going to make it to your dentist appointment. You know, having a little bit of stress is really helpful in terms of your performance. However, where that U starts to slope down on the far side, that's when your performance starts to decrease. And that's when the stress is just getting too much and starting to tip over into the experience of psychological distress, which really just means, you know, symptoms of anxiety and depression. So starting to impact the way that you may or may not be able to relax or be or, you know, how your mood states are for the vast majority of your day. Going a little bit further here then, if we start to look at what stress actually does to the system, if you have a perception of stress, what happens is that your body responds because, hey, we are evolutionarily developed, <laughs> informed creatures, and if a tiger was coming towards us, our survival really depended on getting away from that tiger, right? So you want your heart rate to increase. You want the blood to start circulating faster through your body, particularly to the big muscle areas, your arms and your legs, so that you can really run and pump your arms as you're getting away. You're going to have to get more oxygen-rich blood to those areas and start to take more breaths to be able to draw that oxygen into your system. Your pupils are going to be dilating so that you can see if there's a rock or a cave or something that you might dive or hide behind. Your digestive system does not need to be online. Digesting breakfast is of small concern in this moment. So the blood is no longer going to be flowing to your digestive system or for that matter to the front part of your brain, your prefrontal cortex, the part of your brain that is involved with higher level thinking, because getting away from that tiger is really almost instinctual. You don't need to use these more recently developed parts of your brain to do it. So this of course makes sense in that environment of the tiger chasing you. However, you know, this, this same effect is not so useful when you're trying to give a presentation at work or share an important concept with your boss, when you're trying to answer phone calls or respond to emails. It can be really frustrating in and of itself to have this experience. And a lot of people will highlight that when they are experiencing stress, their gut just feels totally off. And this can be related to what's actually going on in the gut, the flora that's living in your gut, you know, the bacteria there. But it's also related to this fight or flight response, which we actually call your sympathetic nervous system. So it's your sympathetic nervous system that activates the fight or flight response and something called the freeze response, which we'll talk to a little bit less here, but I think it is important to include. So with the fight or flight response, you are running or fighting the threat, you know, the stressor. If you cannot get away from that stressor, you move into the freeze response. Now, the best description of the freeze response that I've heard comes from Peter Levine's work. 
he very vividly describes a gazelle running through the plains and a tiger chasing it. Now, the gazelle is in the fight or flight response. Specifically, it's fleeing, it's running. So this is its survival response because it, of course, wants to get away from that tiger. Now, as the tiger gets nearer and nearer, something shifts. The gazelle at a basic level, a very you know, primal level of the nervous system senses this. And as the tiger is making that visual leap, so jaw open, about to bite the gazelle, the gazelle collapses to the ground. Now the tiger has not actually touched the gazelle. The gazelle has gone into this freeze response. It's essentially playing possum, playing dead. And this is really, really helpful in terms of survival because if the tiger then, let's say, drags the gazelle off to its little cave where it goes to then find its cubs, the gazelle might at that moment leap up, run away, and essentially survive. What's really interesting is that when it goes to run away, when it gets a safe distance away, when it's you know, safe from threat, it will shake vigorously, shake like crazy, like shaking all of that energy and that strain on the system out. Humans also have this freeze response. Now, the other part of it is if that gazelle did not get away from the tiger, Theoretically, not being cognitively present to be eaten is a benefit. So being disconnected, disassociated from the body is of benefit in that moment of incredible threat. So when I say humans have this response, for sure we do, but it's very rare that you actually see that shaking, that discharging of the energy. So if someone in a very traumatic, difficult situation flips into the freeze response, they might not then discharge that energy at a later point in time, which is why the body is so therapeutic in you know, healing from trauma at a somatic, at a physiological level, because there is often this experience of the trauma being stored in the system. And it's something that we in the field are really working to understand exactly how this happens, exactly what this means. But the data is showing that physical practices like yoga, trauma-sensitive yoga specifically, are resulting in changes in an individual's well-being and the re-experiencing and the trauma effects that they might have been experiencing prior to engaging in this treatment. Now, the other part of the nervous system, so the other side of the sympathetic nervous system that we just talked about, the fight, flight, or freeze, is the parasympathetic nervous system. So your parasympathetic nervous system is often called your rest and digest response. That is where all of the blood starts recirculating to your gut so you can digest those wonderful, delicious meals, relax with friends, family. The blood is flowing fully, you know, through your brain, through your prefrontal cortex, you can think clearly, rationally, you can connect in relationship, respond to social cues, the heart rate slows, breathing slows, pupils return to normal dilation. So in a safe environment, the relaxation response is evoked. 
And there's been a lot of research that suggests one's ability to move into this state of parasympathetic nervous system activity into a state of relaxation or the relaxation response as it's sometimes you know called, that that capacity to swap from sympathetic nervous system to parasympathetic nervous system is a real predictor of health. So with that, there is something called the vagus nerve that has been suggested as part of the mechanism, part of the tools that help one move from sympathetic nervous system activity to parasympathetic nervous system activity. The vagus nerve is fascinating. The vagus nerve runs down sort of the length of your body, touching and connecting to these really important areas, you know, from right down through your heart, your lungs, you know, your digestive system, your gut. It's the biggest nerve in the body. And we hear of something called vagal tone. So your vagal tone is essentially the strength of your vagus nerve. Like if you think that, you know, lifting some weights, doing regular bicep curls might strengthen your bicep, strong strength in the vagus nerve allows it to turn on when you need it in these times of stress. So regular exercises to strengthen your vagus nerve are imperative. And these exercises are a bit different than bicep curls in some ways, but may in fact look like yoga postures. You know, that curling and lengthening, bending, stretching that comes with a yoga practice is thought that that might be one of the ways that we strengthen vagal tone. Other ways are through meditation, through breathing exercises, so something that is also included in a yoga practice. But before we dive into all of these ways that yoga might affect the system, I just want to take a moment to jump back to that stress response. So when we perceive a stressor, the sympathetic nervous system kicks in. Where we evolved, how we evolved, chances are we were not seeing tigers every day, you know, at least generally speaking. However, it's the perception of a stressor. So what happens right now if you close your eyes? You know, you, you could, don't close your eyes if you're driving, but you could see a tiger, right? You could imagine that. And the same thing can happen at 3 a.m. when you're laying in bed. You can imagine catastrophe, the worst case scenario. What happens if you don't get that project done on time? What happens if that person you're really connecting with no longer wants to spend time with you? What happens if X, Y, and Z, you know, our minds can do incredible things and really come up with these amazing worst case scenarios in all sorts of uncommon situations or unlikely situations. So we can actually imagine the stressor that starts to cause these physiological changes in our body. So you can be laying in bed, having these thoughts, and then suddenly you can't sleep, but it feels like your heart is in your throat, not particularly helpful for not sleeping. And then the next day with limited sleep, one's emotional capacity and tolerance is going to be a bit lower. And then when you have, you know, perhaps an ambiguous text message with a friend or an uncomfortable conversation at work or someone's tone seems off or someone's rude when you're getting on the bus, those things are going to be experienced differently than they might have otherwise. 
But regardless, even on a good day, those things can hurt and going to do a presentation at work can also be very stressful or responding to all those emails. So suddenly again, that sympathetic nervous system is kicking into gear. And what happens if you're running from work to after school sports, to making dinner, to getting back on the computers, to doing work, or in other scenarios where you may be in lockdown and you're actually trying to just get through the day with a bazillion people buzzing around your place, or alternatively, maybe being all on one's own and having that loss of social connection. So these things are going to affect nervous system and well-being. So then suddenly sympathetic nervous system is turned on and something called the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, which basically, you know, is your endocrine system. So the hormonal system in your body. So both of these systems are activated and your immune system picks up on this because there's a common molecular language, which just means the little molecules in your body speak to each other. They the immune system is activated and told, hey, you know, something's not right. There's a stressor here. We need to manage it. And again, this is brilliantly designed because if that tiger had been chasing you back in the day and you were running away, if you had gotten bit, you would want your immune system active to fight the infection so that that wouldn't be the thing that kills you. The thing is the immune system being turned on again and again and again actually burns the immune system out. I really like the analogy of the boy who cries wolf. You know, the story of the boy who, you know, is watching his flock of sheep, is a little bit bored, heads to the town, tells the villagers wolf, wolf, and they all come running to help him protect his sheep. And there's no wolf there. And he does this a few days in a row. And then when there is a wolf there, he goes to call for them and they don't come. So this is what happens with our immune system essentially is suddenly when we are really sick, if our immune system has been overactive prior, it's not going to turn on for us in the same way and then we are more likely to become unwell. So the immune system, when it is active or, you know, trying to initiate a response, releases little things called, little proteins called cytokines. So these are actually inflammatory markers. So when you hear that when people are very stressed, levels of inflammation go up and that this is... um, difficult for the body's system that's kind of what's happening here and these cytokines they actually can go and tell the brain hey things aren't good there's a stressor going on so our brain then is actually wired to be looking out for stressors so again something that is maybe innocuous like something that is ambiguous might be more likely than to be interpreted as a stressor if our system's actually wired to be looking for what's going on in our environment that's dangerous but beautifully these cytokines actually communicate with the vagus nerve as well so a well-turned vagus node uh, nerve is going to pick up on these cytokines and it's going to start to initiate a parasympathetic nervous system response. So it starts to balance things out. It starts to turn on that relaxation response. 
If we don't have that parasympathetic nervous system tone, then unfortunately, this cycle of this higher level response will continue and one may, you know, move into a state of, you know, chronic, chronic stress, which unfortunately has many negative impacts, both in terms of mental health and physical health. So yoga, where, where does that jump in? Well, yoga teaches us a few things, doesn't it? In a yoga practice, we are observing sensation in our body. We are noticing what our reaction is, our experience to a particular posture that we might be moving in, out of, in this practice. So we're learning to sit with discomfort, to breathe with discomfort in a safe environment. So that's a really, really beautiful skill to have. We're often taking ourselves away from the hustle and the bustle of stress, so giving ourselves space to initiate this relaxation response, teaching our body how to actually relax by slowing the breathing, slowing the breath. And where our bodies might have, you know, this chronically high arousal pattern or in the past, we might have experienced trauma in our system. We're starting to learn how we move into that in a safe way and reconnect with our body in a manner that is empowering and informative. Now, there are different types of yoga, and I just want to be really mindful here, particularly when I use the word trauma, that listeners, that you you know that Not every yoga is the same yoga. I don't want to say that it's not all created equal, but it speaks to different people at different points and times in different stages. And it's important to be really mindful of your well-being if you are looking to explore a yoga practice. And there's actually some wonderful episodes that we've had on this season. So season two of Wisdom for All being talking about mental health aware yoga and trauma and yoga. So it might be worth having a listen to those because You can find trauma-sensitive classes that are really mental health-informed, trauma-informed, and are really invitational because the last thing that we want to do if we are feeling disempowered and disconnected is to feel forced or coerced into a physical posture that is no longer serving our awareness of our body or brings us into a state of disconnect. So it's worth going really, really slow and mindfully. And if you are in a class where modifications are not available, I would encourage you to do your modifications anyways, to go to a place where the sensation might be uncomfortable but manageable and then if you're asked to do otherwise politely refrain and maybe maybe look for something that feels a bit more aligned but coming back so with the yoga practice you're also doing breathing exercises and as you move your body in and out like i said that movement of the yoga practice may be stimulating the vagus nerve in and of itself so different ways to strengthen vagal tone I think it's incredible that a seated meditation practice can actually be linked to increased vagal tone. So we know that these things matter, that actually taking ourselves out of the stressful environment, almost giving ourselves a break from day to day and a place to focus. Because remember, when we have those images or those, you know, imaginings, those worries in our head, that that can be really difficult 
often in a yoga practice, we're practicing being present. So our mind is, of course, going to wander a million times if you're anything like me. But it's this opportunity to keep coming back to the moment, to train the mind slowly, to build that attentional capacity. And I find, you know, if I'm balancing on one leg and I'm worrying about dinner the next day, I lose my balance. And that's a quick jolt back into present moment time. So it can be somewhat more helpful to have the physical practice if the mind is really prone to wandering than a seated practice in the beginning of course i think the two go hand in hand so beautifully the other thing that happens with the yoga practice is we actually start to see changes in brain neurochemistry so for instance Yoga practitioners demonstrate increased GABA, which is a neurotransmitter that's anxiolytic. And what that means is that it is related to lower levels of anxiety. So we're actually changing our neurochemistry by this yoga practice. So that whole cycle where we go brain stress ignite the sympathetic nervous system, the HPA axis, turn the immune system on, look for further stressors, find the stressors, system ignited, we start to break that cycle. Suddenly we're able to be in the moment to perhaps maybe at times even experience positive emotions, relaxation, a sense of safety, and that communicates you know, to our system, to ourselves, okay, we're safe, parasympathetic nervous system is activated, vagal tone induced, immune system starts to decrease its functionality. Our brain is looking for things that are going well in the neurotransmitters, those chemical changes are supporting this cycle. There's also something that happens with uh, yoga practice or, or really anything that you practice or you do in your life at a very deep level. So specifically at the epigenomic level, most of us hear a lot about our genome and this idea of our genes. Is it environment or is it genes? And we know now that it is both, but specifically the epigenome is where the magic or the real transformation happens. So the things that happen in our environment and within ourselves, you know, the thoughts, the feelings, the experiences we have, give our body a clue to turn on or turn off specific genes. Now, it's much more complicated than this, but I really like the example of turning on a tap or turning off a tap because that gives you a visual cue. So for example, if growing up and, and through your life you're in you know, really healthy environments, eating healthy foods, spending lots of time outdoors, being really well emotionally supported, that is likely to turn on more of the genes associated with health and well-being through the course of time. However, if the environment maybe is not so healthful, maybe the food isn't of the best quality, the um, environment you're in might be polluted or toxic, and emotionally maybe there are some difficulties that arise, then in that case it might be turning off the genes associated with health and well-being and turning on the genes associated with illness, physical or mental, or perhaps both. 
So you can see that what we do with ourselves and around ourselves matters. And we don't, we don't get to go back in time and rewrite our histories, right? We're working with where we're at right now. But it is incredible to think that if you spend five minutes, ten minutes putting your feet on the earth, engaging in some deep breathing, some mindful movement, some meditation, that this can have an effect. And in fact, it actually doesn't take that much time to see changes happening at this epigenomic level. So the changes are measured in different ways. One of the ways of measuring is through something called methylation, which is essentially a cue that an area has been turned on and turned off. So you can measure these little um, parts of the epigenome and with yoga, we have found that there are epigenomic changes after only eight weeks of a yoga practice. So that's two months of practicing around one hour each week. So that was some of the research I was involved in. And it's the first study that looked at yoga. So of course, you know, it's not something that we can hang our hats on and say definitively, oh, this is doing precisely this or that, but it's really interesting to think, right? And it's interesting to think that these changes that happen at the epigenomic level can, for instance, tell your body to produce more of those inflammatory proteins or less of those inflammatory proteins might tell the vagus nerve when it should or should not be turning on there can be real messages that happen through this system and there's been other research of the like there's been research demonstrating that a practice of loving kindness meditation um, assists in epigenomic transformation and there's been some that has even demonstrated one day granted it was an eight-hour retreat day of meditation has measurable effects at the epigenomic level so if you're able to spend a little bit of time every day engaging in some form of self-care whether it's yoga you know different forms of meditation breathing mindfulness practices these things are going to help you know what you do matters and brilliantly these changes that you make will of course affect you for the course of your lifetime but if you are you know planning on having a family the changes that one makes in their own epigenome are passed down to the next generation and this is really sad where we see intergenerational trauma being passed down it's it's not just the environment that one is around but it's actually embodied in the sense of what's happening at that epigenomic level but it means that we can make meaningful change and perhaps pass down to our own children something a little bit different from what we inherited of course, I don't say this to add stress or you know, frustration that this information might be accessed at a later point in your life, but I think it, it's really nice to be inspired and to know that what you do does matter. So I hope that provides a little bit of an overview as to what's happening through a yoga practice and then in regards to how that then affects stress because we start to see decreases in perceived stress with yoga practice and decreases in psychological distress. So what I mean by that is that 
while someone's external life situation may not have changed, their perception of their capacity to cope with those stressors is enhanced through a yoga practice. We may not know the exact mechanism, but how interesting, you know, maybe there's a metaphor. You're standing in like a warrior posture, this strong posture, and starting to find this sense of inner strength within oneself. You know, maybe as slowly we might find we have a little bit more balance or a little bit more strength in our arms, maybe that becomes a little bit easier. And with the changes then seen in psychological distress, so that's decreased symptoms of anxiety and depression, this might be related to the fact that through a yoga practice, you know, the research I've been involved in, has indicated that people experience increased positive effect after a yoga practice. So increased experiences of positive emotions. And these positive emotions can be healing in the right context. So I think that's really important. You know, it doesn't necessarily mean that in the yoga practice you experience decreased negative emotions, but experiencing increased positive emotions can help balance the favors of where things are sitting in our lives. I do really want to just take a moment to go back to that point, hey? So it doesn't mean that we experience decreased negative emotions. I think it's important to acknowledge that yoga is not all love and light. This mentality around it being like a good vibes only place or, you know, happy vibes only here. I think that that's an unfortunate message because we are all human beings. If we are scared or feel shamed for experiencing the negative emotions that are part of this experience, that's really unhelpful. You know, and the negative thoughts, we all have such shadow sides as we might call it in some traditions. We all have negative thoughts, unhelpful thoughts. What we're learning through practices like yoga, like meditation, like breathing is to be able to slow down and connect in. And then perhaps when we walk off of our mats, we're a little bit more able to act in a manner that is aligned with our higher sense of self and our sense of how we want to conduct ourselves in the world and what is meaningful to move towards and create in our lives. So we're also then bringing, you know, this nervous system change with us to the work that we're doing because yoga is not about what happens on the mat. Ultimately, yoga is about how we create and cultivate lives that feel aligned and feel vital to us. I hope that this has maybe given you a little bit of motivation or information if yoga is something that you resonate with. And if not, that's cool too. A lot of this information applies to mindful movement practices generally. Emily Sandos in one of her interviews at the end of season one talks through some other wonderful mindful movement practices, you know, things like rock climbing, you know, different opportunities for us to slow down and connect in and I think they would all have similar benefits going out for a walk in nature whatever it may be for you allow yourself this little bit of extra information this little bit of you know nerdy yoga or mindfulness or awareness science to help motivate you and to help bring that intentionality of healing to whatever your practice is. 
I am wishing you well and looking forward to connecting with you next week. We will be back to having a wonderful interview then. So without further ado, bye for now. Thanks for joining us this week on the Wisdom for Wellbeing podcast. Please visit drcaitlin.com to connect, find show notes, other episodes, and to subscribe. While you're at it, if you find value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating or perhaps simply tell a friend about the show. Wisdom for Wellbeing is not a substitute for professional, individualized mental health treatment. If you are in crisis, please contact 000, your local emergency number if you are outside of Australia, or attend your local hospital ED.